What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University in New York. And this week, I'm joined by my fellow historian, the brilliant Dr. Amira Rose Davis. She's Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State. And we're with the fierce Shireen Ahmed, freelancer, activist, and soon-to-be TED Talker, you should definitely go, in Toronto, Canada. Before we start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind people about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2, to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards and our undying gratitude. This week, we're going to discuss concussions, boxing, Shireen interviews Raven, a roller derby skater from Team Indigenous Rising about the team's goals and how they transcend borders, how they connect and unite through the sport. And finally, we'll talk about athletes that we admire who are doing amazing work. But before all that, I did want to talk a little bit about the U.S. men's national soccer team. <laughs> yes! <laughs> if we who, have to. Who, or maybe I should say, maybe it's better to say, I want to discuss the Canadian men's soccer team and their surprising victory over the U.S. men's national team 2-0 this week. How are y'all feeling about that? <laughs> yes. Okay. So, Amira, may I go first? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just was going to say, I don't follow men's soccer in this country, admittedly. I mean, I, I see the updates. I subscribe to Canada soccer, et cetera, et cetera. If there's a game, I'm not going to go out of my way to watch it. But this is really interesting. And I, I got highlights I didn't even watch. I was really surprised. But like I said, I don't follow it. And I haven't watched, you know, John Herdman carry the team and take them forward. I was very sad when he left. John Herdman, the coach of the Canadian men's team, is was coach of the Canadian women's team, and his departure was a bit of a shock. So that is that. But let me just tell you about Alfonso Davies. Alfonso Davies is an amazing young Canadian kid. And I always make this joke that my kids thought that the, the only player from the men's team they could name was Josie Altidore, who's actually... American. But the point is, is that Alfonso Davies is fantastic. I'm so excited about this because actually, I think in CONCACAF, America has been dominant in some ways. And so we just sort of look down at ourselves. So this was, this was just a lot of fun. Also, Sloane Stevens was there. So I, I just think that that's that's fabulous. I, I mean, I know her partner's American, Josie Altador, but the point is, is that she's in Toronto a lot. And I think like her magicalness helps this country always and you Amira how are you feeling about the game well yeah it's the first time in 35 years that result has happened and I think that there's an interesting thing that happens in this country because of the U.S. women's national team success but also their strive for equity on the pitch and from the U.S. Soccer Federation a lot of times people make U.S. men's national team the foil so it's like you know, that's what that's who's getting paid more. And, you know, a lot of tweets that will kind of snark at the loss. And personally, I actually don't find much utility in that. Um, because I think that there's guys like Josie, who I absolutely adore on that team. And I would, you know, prefer if they got their shit together. You know, I would like that for them. And, it's just, it's a young team. It's just not working. So I don't know. I don't really know. I think a lot of this is on uh, Greg Berhalter. Yeah, I was going to ask if uh, you thought he was going to have much longer of a tenure here. 
Well, I feel like he shouldn't, you know, but who the hell knows? Because Carlos Cordero does whatever the hell he wants to do. Like, I don't think there's a lot of, like, competency happening around the top. And in particular, like, I just think that there's so much investment that goes into the men's national team with so little to show for it. That's frustrating. And it's not frustrating you know, it's frustrating, of course, if you want to juxtapose it to the women, but then it's just frustrating on its own right, especially at a time where soccer's, you know, fans in, in the United States, it's growing, you know, go to Atlanta United game, go like the MLS is growing. P- the number of people who wake up on a Saturday morning to watch Premier League off their phones or computers is growing. So the fact that you can't you know, seize on that, seize on these, you know, development tracks, seize on this excitement and like also invest in a way that makes the national team like the kind of tip of this football iceberg in the in the country um, on the men's side, like a viable <laughs> competitor. Like it's just frustrating. I don't really have anything else to say about that, but like is just another disappointment. Well, something that grates on me about the social media reaction to US men's national team losing at any point is this like assumption that it's embarrassing to lose to other countries. And I get really like upset about that. It's like when they lost to Mexico recently and I walked in and I was teaching a sport class and a lot of my students who are who are big fans were like, I can't believe it. It was so terrible. And I'm like, can you really not believe it? Like Mexico's not embarrassing to lose to. You know? So to a certain extent, like I feel you and and I think it's it is a shame that right now MLS is sort of, you know, in a good dynamic moment. And I wish that there was a little bit more of the same crossover for NWSL. But I do get upset when I hear people that are just like, this is so embarrassing. How could we lose to the Honduras? Like I heard that last year. And it was like, because they're better than you and they have a longer soccer tradition and that's okay. Like analyze it, but don't (laughs) just like disrespect the country. Yeah. Well, it's especially because of like who, because of CONCACAF and because of who they're playing, you know, like losing to Mexico, but you know, then they barely beat Carousel or they lost to Jamaica and Venezuela absolutely fucked them up. And so it is also like these mostly Latin American Caribbean countries who are, are like you said, drawing the ear of this. And it's just unnecessarily, I think, you know, the last point, part of it is like, we shouldn't detach this from the corruption at the top of U.S. soccer, right? Like the fact that you have Berhalter in here after a year-long search, you know, and he is, I think his brother is a ranking member of the USSF. What is it? Is he the COO? Something like that. It just, to me, is like, "Mm, that is fishy. It's fishy. And then when you're like not good and it's fishy, it makes me like, like inquiring emoji. (laughs) Bit nepotistic. I think that one of the really important things here, and I appreciate this point very much, is the sort of imperialistic, nationalistic sense that comes in. And and I do appreciate that. And you know what? Losing to Canada in men's soccer, yes, I can see how that would be, you would grimace. As opposed to Mexico, like, I mean, I mean, if I lost to Chicharito, all would be well. You know what I'm saying? But the thing is, is that losing to Canada when Canada is very steadily building and Canada was pushed to its men's teams because of the embarrassing fact that their men had only made men's team had only made the World Cup once. And this was a fact that I brought up in media. A lot of people brought up in media. So the men's team in Canada was like, no, we've got to get somewhere closer to the women. And our women did not do well at the World Cup. But the thing is, is that using that as a base to say we need to develop the program more. And, you know, I, they didn't say that publicly, but you could clearly know the pressure was on the men's program to do a hell of a lot better because of, you know, the lack of performance. I just think the whole thing is very interesting. And, you know, respect to the, the, the smaller countries, I would love to see a day when Jamaica is, is, is smashing everyone on both sides of the game. Like, I would love that. And I, I love the, the tradition piece you talk about is because, just because American and Canadian fans might not know that soccer is like more stronger in other places doesn't mean it negates their win. Okay. This past week, unfortunately, the boxing community has been 
in mourning by the passing of Patrick Day, who died from head trauma that he suffered in a fight with Charles Conwell. Amira, do you want to get us started on this conversation? Yes, I would. Um, This was tough. You know, it was tough to follow the story of Patrick Day. He was 27 and he sustained injuries in, in the ring. And then there was a few days that were kind of touch and go. And I just, you know, I saw it when it first happened and I followed the story. And I don't know, it really kind of was unsettling. So I wanted to, you know, have this conversation. We talk about CTE and concussions and a lot within the kind of realm of football. Um, But I wanted to kind of turn to boxing and, and think about its continuation as a sport when we know more and more about head drama, when we know more and more about kind of critical brain injuries. And I don't know, what what do you guys think? Like, is this, the more and more that we see traumatic brain injuries and, and severe injuries, but even death in the ring, is this going to lead to boxing seeing a diminishing as a as sport people do and my kind of follow-up to that is does it go you know do we see a similar trend in boxing that we that some people have talked about in football which is when Andrew Luck retired which is the fact that the game is getting faster it's getting stronger people are hitting harder both on the field and in the ring and it's a gladiator sport both of them are and are we seeing it kind of more and more being left to people who come from less resource backgrounds who stay in the fight, stay in the ring, stay on the pitch, stay on the field longer because this is one way to have social mobility, to gain resources and are literally putting their lives at risk because of what we know of, of traumatic brain injuries. Is, is that boxing's future? Huh. So I write about boxing sometimes, <laughs> not not all, usually soccer person, but I write about boxing and Afro-Argentine boxers in the 1930s. And I've thought a lot about vulnerability and the question of vulnerability. And it's so interesting that exactly the way you frame it, Amira, about who it is that ends up in these particular kind of sports is almost never really a discussion unless it's a happy story of, you know, upward mobility. And it's very rarely analyzed, though it's such an obvious and and right point, who it is that's willing to take those kinds of risks. And you think about someone like Mike Tyson, or I do anyway, and you just look at his life, which is just a shambles, like even if it's the best one that you can do. And there's no way that there's not, you know, CTE playing a part in his struggle. You know, and I also feel like what happens when also people are consuming sports through like, you know, video gaming and thinking, objectifying the people more and more. I feel like the future of sports consumption is also a further objectification, whether it's through video gaming or, you know, esports, whatever it is. Shireen? I just wanted to remind our listeners that I had interviewed Dr. Linda Dahl for the podcast on episode 79. And she wrote a book, which is called, she's known as the fight doctor. And she actually wrote a book called tooth and nail. And I think either the only first ringside physician who is a woman, and it was very, or, or one of the first, very, very first. And it was just very interesting because her perspective, and I remember in this interview, I said to her, what are the most violent sports with her experience in this? And she told me boxing and hockey for sure. And I was really surprised by that. And she says, you know, from the point of uh, somebody who's in this this field of practice, these things are very, very dangerous. And then I just think that like her member talked about a lot of that. You're both talking about the socioeconomic context of these things. And she spoke about that too. And these are all factors that you don't hear enough of. And as far as, you know, the loss in the community, boxing has a lot of money. There's a lot of promoters. There's just a lot of money about it. There's a lot of betting. There's so much money in it. And I always feel like this is one sport 
that gets, you know, glorified in some ways because of the history of Muhammad Ali. And people will look at with respect and with love because of his legacy, but don't actually do anything to help athletes in those situations who might need the support. Yes. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things in the wake of Patrick Day's death is this is one of a series of fighters who has died this year. So there are, I think, four or five anyway that that have gone through a similar death. And I was reading when I was prepping for this, some of the people who are either doctors or in other ways, the promoters. And when they're asked what can be done, the answer is almost unilaterally nothing. So there's all this money, but the people who I'm reading who have been interviewed, and maybe they're just justified, maybe they just want to keep it going, but you know, maybe they're too invested to think differently. But when I'm reading, like the BBC had a really good article, which we'll put in the show notes, when they're interviewing people, basically the doctors and the promoters are saying like, there's nothing, we've thought of what we can do and there's just simply no way to make it safe. And so I don't really know going forward how there's necessarily any solution. Yeah, I think about that. But, you know, I I wanted to think about these risks that athletes take. And there are sports that are scary and there's sports that come with these risks. And, you know, a lot of if you go look up Patrick Day, you'll see he comes from a Haitian American family. His mom was very worried about these risks. And there's a lot of kind of through lines like he didn't need to box. He wanted to box. And I think about this quote from Patrick Day. And he said, people look at me, they look at my demeanor and say, you're such a nice guy, well-spoken. Why do you choose to box? It's about what's in your heart. I have a fighter's soul, a fighter's spirit, and I love this sport. Boxing makes me happy. That's why I choose to do it. And I was thinking about that here in State College. We, over the summer, a young girl, 13-year-old from the community, tragically lost her life. She was an equestrian. And she was one of the top junior equestrians in the country. She was on her way to their championships. And her and her horse were doing a jump that I have been told is so easy. It's like one of us, you know, walking over a curb. And they missed the jump and she fell and her horse fell on top of her, killing her. Oh, God. And some of the, particularly close with one family of a girl who was there, but also rides with her. And there was discussion about, are they done with the sport? And she said, no, like this, this is what makes me happy. And I know the risks. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that because so much of our conversation, I think with CT and traumatic brain injury and, and the kind of risk of these gladiator sports centers on football that we miss these kind of dangers in sports like equestrian sports in in boxing. You know, I'm thinking about the women in sports are 50% more likely to sustain a traumatic brain injury and more likely to have uh, concussions at a higher rate and that the impact of their concussions are more long-term effects and the symptoms linger longer. And thinking about what that means And so that the same way that we make a call to action and we pour resources into looking at CT and football, making football safer and the technology we use and the equipment we use in that sport, we have to remain committed to do that in boxing, in equestrian sports, in soccer. We have to make sure that we, you know, as sporting communities are equally incessant about making other sports safer because they all carry risk. There are people performing this at high levels and it shouldn't take tragedies to make it a call to action. Shireen? I just wanted to bring up something we've talked about on the show before about Ronan's Law. Now, Ronan's Law was enacted in Canada after and named after Rowan Stringer, who was a 17-year-old rugby player and died. Um, She lived in the Ottawa area and she died after having two concussions in one week And like the history on her phones, actually, this is a very harrowing story that was published in the National Post. She had Googled concussions, but she didn't really sort of understand. And I think it was her mother said that she thought she might have one, but she didn't tell her family because she also really wanted to play. And some of the effects of like concussions, they cannot be felt immediately. And so 
players, like I've seen this before when my daughter Jihad got her first mild concussion. She's only have one knock on wood. She was like, no, I'm fine. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm that mom. That's like lights off, no screen, not doing anything. You need to get hundred percent better because when you suffer from a concussion, the susceptibility, you're susceptible to suffer more. And the way that my physician had explained it to me was that like when you get a ligament injury, it's it's a rough comparison. You are susceptible to having more ligament injuries more frequently when you roll your ankle or your ATFL ligament in, in your ankle, for example. And I've done this many times, which is why I know. And she said to me, it's almost the same thing with a concussion because nothing's actually holding your brain there. It's like floating. And it's, you know, she explained it in a way that made me understand like you're shaking it around in this way that it's not meant to be dealt that's not meant to be handled in that way and it can be very dangerous and I think one of the things that needs to happen in in terms of sport is not only educating because a lot of the coaches can be volunteers and I know that in Ontario the province in which I live if you are a coach you have to take a mandatory for for any like league whether it's volleyball or hockey or soccer you have to take a concussion protocol test and but not in addition to the coaches doing it I think the athletes need to be aware and that's one of the things that worries me how little, and I mean, maybe 12 years and up would be a good thing. You're not going to sit down with like an eight-year-old and explain concussion protocol, but you can explain things like if you feel dizzy, if you feel like you can't stand up, you know, like that kind of stuff. And and people make fun of that. But I think also empowering and giving athletes as young as they can be an opportunity to learn about this is a very good thing. And that hasn't happened. I haven't seen that happen. And with Rowan's Law, like there's actually... It's, it's incumbent, now getting back to that, to put in concussion law. And I know that in the United States, they do have this in a lot of states, but it hadn't been here. In, in Canada, it was the first time this was done in 2018. And Rowan died in 2016. So it, it took a while for it to pass. But I just think that that's really important. And now that it's on the books and stuff like this, that we see it. And this is for high school sports. And there was, you know, at one point, the Ontario school board, sorry, the Ottawa school board was going to ban rugby because they were so upset about what happened. That's also not a solution. So there needs to be ways for people to work together and understand because rugby brings a lot of people joy. It can be dangerous. And like Amira said, people knowing the risks is important, but being really educated on the risks is important too. Now, Shireen interviews Raven, an Indigenous roller derby athlete. Hello, flamethrowers. It's Shireen here. Today, I'm so, so excited to have Raven Cameron on the show. Raven Cameron is a two-spirit artist who currently lives in Toronto, Ontario. They are Cree and Métis from Saddle Lake Cree Nation in Alberta, Canada. Raven has always had an appreciation for sports, but roller derby was the one thing that got them moving. They've been doing roller derby for nine years and joined Team Indigenous Rising in 2019. Welcome, Raven. Hi, thank you for having me. Can you tell me a little bit, first of all, of how you got into roller derby? So I got into roller derby because it was actually my first week of high school in 2010. There's a there's a flyer outside, like in my high school for the junior league in Saskatoon. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, this seems interesting. I watched the movie with it. I know what roller derby is. Yeah, which is very not, definitely not the case. So yeah, I joined it through then. And I just kept going. I just, I just didn't stop. So what was it about roller derby that like drew you in? Because like there's camaraderie, but there's mm-hmm. also like different skill levels. There's that like, it's one of the sports that I've seen in my life that you want to crush your teammates, but you also want to help them up and help them. So it's like, it's so fascinating that way to me. Yeah, it's like, definitely like meeting new people was really important for me. It's really funny because like, I couldn't tie my skates like the first time I was on them. Like, I think I had to ask my dad for help. He was like, <laughs> look, I'm not doing this for you next week. You have to learn. <laughs> It's cool. But yeah, I feel like it was a big social thing for me at first. Mm. Yeah, I don't want to say I was like a super sporty kid. But this was like, this was the first thing that I was like, Oh, wow. Yeah, I really enjoy this. Sports are fun. Sports are fun when I play them. I like to be competitive. That's awesome. Tell me a little bit about Team Indigenous Rising. Team Indigenous Rising, I don't remember the year 
It was started by Mick Swagger and Jumpy McGee, who are two very amazing skaters. Mm-hmm. And I believe they debuted at the Blood and Thunder World Cup a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So the team that you're on, this team Indigenous Rising, I'm assuming there's everybody who identifies as an Indigenous person on the team. And are you trying to get to a tournament specifically or a game? And tell me a little bit about that. So we are, I think we're still trying to figure that out more or less. <laughs> But I think what I'm going to say is we are working toward the World Cup, which I do not know when that officially is. Okay. But usually it's, yeah, it's teams from all over the world. Mm -hmm. They meet, they play. Otherwise, we've been doing a lot of, we just recently played at RollerCon, which is a big roller derby convention in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. We played a mini tournament there with uh, Team Japan, Team Korea, Team Jewish, and Team Canada. So what are your hopes for what Team Indigenous Rising does is to actually have, you know, be part of that unit, which is really important anyway. But do you get an opportunity to talk about issues in these events? Because I know that roller derby are actually one of the few sports where people are open to talking about like issues that are of utmost importance in different communities. Yeah, I feel like our team identifies as a borderless. Like we are okay. We are more or less like one. Mm-hmm. We definitely discuss a lot of issues. Like if you go to our Facebook page, I believe it's Team Indigenous Rising. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like dialogue, especially around issues surrounding like racism and a lot of things like that. Yeah, which is really important. So your team, because it's borderless, and I absolutely love that. So do you take people from all over the world or is it predominantly Canada and the United States? I believe it's like over Turtle Island is okay. uh, our team. So okay. I believe it is Canada, US, and South America. That's amazing. So how do you practice together if you're all located in different places? We don't. We <laughs> practice usually once before we end up playing. Right. Like in Las Vegas, we, pl- we practiced Thursday night and then we played four half-hour games on Friday and a full-length wow. game on Saturday. Wow. So it's kind of a trial by fire. Right. And that seems to be working out well. Yeah, it worked out really great. That's awesome. Like, it's so it's so wonderful to hear, especially in an age where this is possible. Like, we've had some guests on the show before, like, Team Afghanistan doesn't actually have players in the same continents. So mm-hmm. they do a lot of training on WhatsApp or, like, do videos and then follow that and then meet together, like you said. So it is very, very possible. If people wanted to get involved with Team Indigenous Rising, either to play or... Or to support financially? Because you have a campaign, a fundraising campaign happening, don't you? Yeah, we currently have a GoFundMe because we are playing a game in Montreal against Team Jewish, who is Mm -hmm. also a borderless team. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we have a GoFundMe page for Team Indigenous Rising. I do not know when there's going to be another tryout, but Mm -hmm. there will be like anything on our social media, which is mainly like Facebook or Instagram, that'll have the uh, instructions. Okay, that's awesome. It's good to know. So tell me a little bit about being an Indigenous team and being an Indigenous person in that world of roller derby. Is it predominantly white? Do you see a lot of diversity? Do you see a lot of attempts for people to broaden that spectrum? Yeah, I feel like teams like uh, Team Indigenous Rising and like Team Jewish, having a team like that's really similar to that is just... I don't know. I think it's really important and very beautiful because I know when I first joined roller derby, it was, and frankly, roller derby is still very white. Yeah. But I feel like the more that like we're out there, there's like more visibility and it's more like, oh yeah, I can also do that. Mm -hmm. Like they look like me. Mm -hmm. They probably have, they might have similar experiences. This Mm -hmm. is very important. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Is there a particular skater or a jammer that you've looked up to? Like sort of like role model-ish? Many a skater. I would say one of the first skaters that really caught my eye was, uh, she is definitely retired by now, but uh, her name was Buffy St. Fury. She was from uh, Terminal City. Yeah. And uh, she skated under Harvey, but she was like one of the first indigenous skaters that I like, I saw and I was like, oh, she's native and she's she skated on like Team Canada for, I believe it was like for their 2014 team. Okay. Which was 
which was just amazing to see. That's excellent. Like that's, I, I also wanted to let our listeners know, in case you're not familiar, roller derby skaters and jammers actually have names. I don't want to call them stage names. What do you refer to them as? Just like, what do you say? Alter ego names? Like, what do you refer to them as? You know what? Never thought about it. I guess like, yeah, a moniker is is apt. Yeah, it's just my other name, I guess. <laughs> um, for those of our listeners that have been listening to the show since we first started our first Pride episode, we actually had Dr. Alex Hanna on who goes by Kate Silver. So I first learned about this from knowing Alex because everybody referred to her as Kate Silver. And I'm like, what's happening right now? Like, I didn't know what was going on. So you were telling me, Raven, that your your name for roller derby is actually Raven. That's your actual yeah. name. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, for Team Indigenous, I just skate under Raven. I feel like it's easiest. I thought about using my last name, but I don't know. It just didn't feel great. I just didn't want that. And also, yeah, it's my name. It's easiest. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually a beautiful name. So mm-hmm. do you play on another team in, addi- in, in addition to Team Indigenous Rising? Yeah, I play with a team in Toronto. We're called the Smoke City Bandits. I'm actually co-captain of that team. Mm -hmm. I don't skate under Raven on that team. I skate under Fight of the Concords, and that's a playoff of uh, Flight of the Concords, the uh, New Zealand folk duo. So you have a lot of derby happening in your life. Yeah, I sure do. How often do you train and practice and compete? I think it depends on how busy it is, because roller derby seasons are really like usually a couple months out of the year mm-hmm. when I was training for the season I was training usually like once on skates and usually like once or twice off skates mm-hmm. and usually our practices would be like on like Saturdays and if we had a game it would be like all right practice is canceled because <laughs> we have a game <laughs> so when when is roller derby season and are they similar in most leagues around Turtle Island or are they, are they similar Honestly, I don't really know. I feel like it depends on uh, on your local league. Right. League, mm-hmm. I would say that it mostly revolves around a uh, hockey rink season and when the uh, ice is gone. Okay, right. That makes. So sense. I would say like yeah. yeah, like I would have a broad estimate of like April to maybe like July. When is the world? I know you know don't know exactly when it is, mm-hmm. but does the World Cup happen every year? No, the World Cup happens, like, I want to say, like, every four years. Okay, so it's like a World Cup and other major events, like, once every four years kind of thing. And so we're gearing up to that. Can you tell me a little bit where our listeners can find out and support Team Indigenous Rising? Like, do you know, you said there's a GoFundMe. Yeah, there is a GoFundMe that is uh, Team Indigenous Rising, and it is to get us to Montreal. We also have a... I believe we have an Instagram that is set. The URL is also just Team Indigenous Rising. Mm -hmm. And we also have a Facebook page that's Team Indigenous Rising Roller Derby. Okay, awesome. So I just wanted to thank you very, very much. And for being on Burn It All Down, I also think that for all of our listeners that have been asking for more roller derby content, because we definitely get that, we just wanted to let you know that we hear you and we're so happy to have Raven on the show. And Raven, is there anything else you wanted to add about either the campaign or anything else? Or if you just wanted to sing a little song, because I feel like one of your secret talents could be singing. I feel this way. (laughs) Actually, one of my secret talents is uh, playing the banjo. (gasps) I feel like that's uh, my actual kind of hidden talent. Mm. People usually just don't ask about it. (laughs) That's amazing. Do you have a particular, I wish I knew because I would have been like, can you whip out your banjo and play us something like that? So do you have a particular repertoire or a particular song that you're amazing at? Oh, no, I'm like, I'm very out of practice. (laughs) But next time we meet in person, and I was really happy to meet you last weekend Mm -hmm. um, at our friend Cricket's Aufita Zen party, (laughs) I would have requested banjo. But next time we meet, I would love to see you. I'm such a big fan. I'm not familiar with banjo music, but I will try to become in your honor. That's super cool. Wow. Never would. Yeah. It's like usually very fun and happy music. It is really fun to play. So have you ever played the banjo while skating? No, that sounds terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I worry not necessarily for like myself. I just worry about like 
my beautiful banjo. Oh, of course, of course, definitely. But anyways, thank you so much. That's you wowed me thank totally. You. And especially the banjo you just slayed. So mm-hmm. thank you again for being on Burn It All Down. And we wish you and Team Indigenous Rising the best of luck. Yeah, thank you. Our game is being shown on WFTDA.TV on Saturday, November 16th at 11.30 a.m. like Eastern Standard Time. Mm-hmm. Our game is going to be against Team Jewish, and it's going to be the first borderless uh, roller derby game that's being played. That's amazing. So November, everybody, please pay attention. What's the date again? November 16th. November 16th, which is a Saturday? Yeah, it is uh, a Saturday morning at 1130. 1130. That's awesome. Thank you so much for those details, and it will be available online for free. So please check that out. Please support Raven and the team. And again, we wish you all the luck in the world from burn it all down. And thank you for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So for a peppy topic, I would like us to discuss a little bit about athletes that we're excited, inspired by, who are doing sociopolitical work that we know gets them in a lot of hot water a lot of times and isn't the easiest thing to be doing. Shireen, you want to start with somebody? Sure. This uh, segment was kind of, it was fun. I was like, should I talk about Allison Felix? Cause she's been doing amazing stuff. Should I talk about Sunny Bill Williams, who I love and Stan with the New Zealand All Blacks? I'm actually going with Inez Cantor. Now, for those of you that don't know this NBA player, he plays with Boston and he moved this year. And I think that one of the things about Inez Cantor, who is, who is Turkish, he's a Swiss-born Turkish national, he's somebody who dissents very publicly and openly. And it got to a point where when he was with Portland, I believe, he wouldn't travel overseas because there was a warrant issued for his arrest. Now, for those of you that are not very familiar on the politics of Turkey, I am not going to get into that specifically. What I'm going to say is Cantor is not a fan of Erdogan, who is the president of Turkey. And because he speaks out publicly, there have been actual warrants for his arrest. So Cantor didn't travel because he was afraid Interpol would actually arrest him at certain points. And he was detained a couple of years ago. I believe it was in Romania en route. He stayed in the airport. He was almost detained. He was questioned by the authorities there. And then he was allowed to come home to the United States. So his family has felt, you know, the, the 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 ramifications of his speaking out. His sister is a physician and she can't get a job because of her last name. His father's a professor of genetics. And this takes a lot. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but in the world, the country with the most amount of journalists who are detained without sort of proof is Turkey. And it's really scary because there's, you know, it wants to come across as this beautiful combination of secularism and Islam. And don't get me wrong, I'm I'm, I'm very much for women be able to wear hijab if they want to, which was not possible in Turkey for a very long time. They can do that now. But at the same time, we have to be fair and look at many of the problems that are happening there. And that's what that's what Cantor does. He talks about it. And this is a hard thing to do because he's been maligned at his mosque. He goes to an Islamic center in Boston and has had people shouting at him. He's had death threats. This is not an easy thing to do. And for those that are removed from that type of understanding of politics there, it's very fiery. People get very, very riled up. There's a sense of nationalism and there's a lack of understanding that you can still love where you're from, but be critical in it. We, we still haven't learned this. And this is, and I mean, there's all types of complications on top of that because people think when you're critical of a Muslim majority country in a place like the United States, it's already got so much anti-Islamic rhetoric. It's just bad. So people are like, well, don't say that in the greater community because you make Islam look bad. This is not about Islam. This is about power. It's about control. It's about men. It's about abuse of power. And it's about Cantor went before the House of Representatives in Massachusetts and talked about this. He also had a really, really powerful um, letter in the Boston Globe, and we'll attach it to the show notes, talking about it. And it, it was just published on this past Thursday. We're recording on Sunday. And, you know, he's like, I will not be silenced. And he said, quote, this is a price I'm ready to pay if this is what it takes to stand up for what I believe in. It's worth it. And you know, I think this is just something that I've appreciated of him. I think I know how difficult it is. And um, there's one more thing I want to add quickly, because I think it's super important when we talk about 
doing the work. Ines Kanter has also explained how important Turkish donors are to the world, and he's shared that publicly, and I'm all here for that. And he has literally, wherever he's gone, whether it's been OKC, whether it's been Portland, he's talked about Turkish food and Turkish kebabs and donors. So I appreciate him in many, many ways. Thanks, Shireen. Amira? Yeah, mine's really short. and I don't know how lifting it is. But I did really want to shout out Harrison Barnes, who plays now for the Sacramento Kings, and his wife, Brittany Barnes, um, as well as Malik Jackson, who's a DT for the Philadelphia Eagles, both of whom stepped up to pay for the funeral of Atiana Jefferson this past week. For those who don't recall or don't know, Atiana Jefferson is a Black woman who was taking care of her eight-year-old nephew last Saturday when a neighbor saw their door jar pretty late into the night and made a wellness check, asked for a wellness check, and police officer arriving to perform the check saw Atiana Jefferson in the window of her own home and in less than a minute shot and killed her in the chest. Don't call police on Black people. It's not safe. And you shouldn't be shot in your own home when you're playing video games with your nephew. And it's a tragedy. It's I don't have words for it, actually. It's, it's too painful. But in the wake of that, Barnes and his wife, Brittany, said, you know, they wanted to do something for that family. Now, Barnes used to play on the Dallas Mavericks. And, you know, he said, when you play in a community, anytime you're in that community, you have a piece of that community with you and you want to give back. So even though now he's playing out with the Kings, he saw this moment, he contacted the family to take care of 90% of the funeral costs. He said, quote, it's a tragic situation that happened. No one should be killed doing a wellness check. But the biggest time is anytime someone has to do uh, go through that, the last thing you want them to have to worry about is trying to come up with the money for a funeral. Malik Jackson pitched in to cover the other 10%. And I just think it's really commendable. It shouldn't be necessary, but I just wanted to give space both to say the name Atiana Jefferson and to lift up her memory, but also to just give space to acknowledge the fact that that Harrison and, and Malik are and Brittany are, are pitching in and doing this work that shouldn't be necessary, but I'm really glad for their generosity. Thanks, Amira. So mine is also really short and it doesn't have to do with anyone famous. This week at the Fair Network, you know, pe- some people know that I'm working with them. It's football people weeks. And there's a ton of projects that have been done, but one in particular that I was super excited about comes from Orgullo Deportivo. And on October 12th, they last last week, they had a wonderful tournament, the first trans tournament, I think, in in Mexico that at least that I knew of. And in that tournament, they not only had sort of you know, empowerment sessions, but they also had some point of service with HIV testing and condom distribution. And I know Zorros LGBT is one of the football clubs that participated. And it's just really amazing sometimes what sports can do and just sometimes what people can do that are into sports that just decide to make it happen. I mean, it's a really scrappy club in Mexico City, what we know in Mexico with the P chant, which is the homophobic chant that happens every time a keeper touches the ball for the Mexican men's team and also in the domestic league. We know homophobia has been really normalized in Mexican football, soccer. So it's just really wonderful and heartening to see all of the projects. And if you want a warm, fuzzy feeling, you can go to the Fairnet's webpage and look at football people and you see the pictures that are coming in around the world. And it's just, it, it's really inspiring. So now it's time for everybody's favorite segment where we take all the trash that's happened in sports this week, put it on a proverbial heap and burn it. Shireen, what have you got this week? I'm so mad at Mo Salah. I am mad about a lot of things. And okay, so for a lot of people that don't know, Mo Salah got the GQ Man of the Year Award 2019. And he was on the cover of Arab GQ. So I believe this is like the Arab GQ because every GQ has its own region as well. So he was on the cover with a photo shoot with Alessandra Ambrosio, who is a former model. And 
The thing is, is that one, I was irritated because their photo shoot actually totally copied the photo shoot that she had with Cristiano Ronaldo. Like it was like the same poses. I don't know why photographers are not like, I apparently there's like only one pose. You can have this model draped over you, which is one of the poses anyways. And anything remotely resembling something to do with Ronaldo always irritates me. So that's the first thing. Secondly, Mohammed Salah has been championed in Muslim communities for being the stellar, upstanding, practicing Muslim who has changed the hearts and mind and has single-handedly combated Islamophobia in a place like Liverpool, where he plays. But the thing is, I'm out here to say I'm not judging this man's level of spirituality or faith. That's not happening. I don't do that. What I do do is critique the fact that he's being upheld to a standard, whereas you've got people that are, in my opinion, equally as pious, like Sadio Mane, who I love, Nagolo Conte, who I also love. Mane is Monsala's teammate at Liverpool, and Conte plays for Chelsea. He is a French national, and they're both amazing. They're wonderful players, but the, and they're both Muslim, but the problem is that they don't get the attention and love that they deserve because they're Black. And there is a tremendous amount of anti-Blackness in Muslim communities, and people have come at me and said, no, that's not fair. You're just judging Mohammed Salah. You can't do that. I'm not doing that. I'm saying there's reasons why he is upheld in a global community, and the other two aren't. Like, you want to talk about having integrity, and one of the things that upsets me the most is Mohammed Salah's manager. His name is Rami Issa. He is a Trump-supporting, transphobic, homophobic, absolute misogynist. He's a terrible human being. He's terrible. And I have people come, and I had this little treatise on uh, Twitter about it. This is how I felt. And I just think that that's, it's unacceptable to, to overlook that. It, it, you just can't do that. If you want to be someone with integrity and want to be someone who is looked to, because I'm sorry, having integrity and having strong principles is, yes, a part of practice in Islam. Don't be an asshole is very much a part of being a good Muslim, right? It's not hard to understand. So having someone who's a Trump supporter doesn't meet that criteria. And people are like, oh, it's business. It's not spiritual. What are you saying? You can't put these things and compartmentalize them. It doesn't work like that. Other thing is, if an Arab woman or a Muslim woman had been on that cover, with a man draped over her, the level of misogyny and the level of sexism she would have faced in Egypt, where Mohammed Salah is from, there was a woman who was almost arrested and charged for wearing a red dress on the red carpet, a premier. This happened a couple months ago, and we'll link this actually in the show notes. This was actually something that happened, and there's a lot of conversation about this, the double standards. So I want to burn that. I'm tired of Mo Salah getting all this stuff. Good luck to you, but I'm, I, I can't stand your manager. I do not want you to get hurt by Sergio Ramos ever, but seriously, fix yourself, fix yourself. And in the meantime, football world, I don't want to hear about him anymore. Give me Sadio Mane or give me nothing. Burn. So I am putting on the burn pile and I want to be really brief because I'm literally so tired of talking about that NCAA. <laughs> I'm just so done with it. I don't even need to put them on our burn pile because they are permanently on Burn It All Down's burn pile. But the NCAA and their case, quote unquote case, against North Carolina State University. And this involves the former basketball player, Dennis Smith Jr. And it has gone to the FBI. Like this is at FBI levels. Supposedly there was an improper $40,000 payment. There was also some tickets that were given to him in exchange and they are valued at $6,000. I don't know how. I don't know how you... <laughs> You value that, but I guess it's $6,000 worth of free tickets. And basically what they're, who they're after is the former men's assistant basketball coach, Orlando Early. And what you find from the FBI, and we'll link to the show notes, the North Carolina News Observer piece on this, but basically it's just the same thing as always. It's a bunch of like soft money flowing in different directions and basically, if the NCAA was just abolished and they paid players what they were worth or even anything at all, we wouldn't be in this situation where we're spending tons of university resources when they're cutting faculty, when they are underpaying adjuncts, when they are raising tuition. 
And yet these programs, which I'm sorry, but there's absolutely no evidence except outside of the very, very top ones that they make anything for the university is an abomination. And so I just, I I don't even, the details are so silly that I won't even bore them bore you with them, but I'm going to link it to this, the show notes. Basically, North Carolina State is not cooperating with the NCAA. The NCAA does not cooperate with the FBI. And it's like, how did these institutions educate students and get away with this garbage? So I just want to put it on the burn pile once again. Burn. 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 Amira. Yeah, I'm a... <laughs> I want to talk about the New York Jets. <laughs> Specifically, <laughs> I hate the Jets, but I want to talk about them. Specifically, Jets offensive lineman Kalechi Osemele, who is dealing with a shoulder injury. He has a torn labrum in his shoulder. Not one, but two doctors have told him that he needs surgery to repair this labrum. But the Jets believe that he can play through the injury, and they want him to postpone the surgery until the end of the season. For the last few weeks, he hasn't practiced, but for the few games that he did play in, three games, um, the last three games, they've given him a painkiller Toradol and basically said, like, take Toradol, go out there, play football. Osimile has basically said, listen, you're giving me a bunch of Toradol and it's not actually relieving my pain. And these doctors told me I need surgery and I want to do it now. And the Jets have basically taken a route that says, if you don't show up to practice and if you don't pay through the plane, then we're going to find or suspend you. And here's the thing. As a veteran, and they measure this by if you've been in the league for more than four years, who's never before filed for termination pay or anything like that, even though his contract has no more guarantee money on it. This is really a dispute over about $5 million. If he was to have season-ending surgery, then he would be eligible to get his entire salary. The Jets don't want to pay him this $5 million. And therefore, if they fine him or if they slap him with the disciplinary action, conduct detrimental to the health of the team, it means they don't actually have to pay him this money. And so they're setting up a situation in which they're either telling him, play through the pain, or we're going to say that you're engaging in conduct detrimental to the to the team and not paying you your salary that you're rightfully entitled for. And this is a showdown that's not settled. It's still going. Well, let me just tell you, I've had not one, but two shoulder surgeries for a labrum tear. And obviously I'm not an NFL player, but that shit is painful. And if two doctors are saying this is surgery and somebody is telling you, I can't pay, play through this, it hurts. You don't drug them up and send them onto the field under threat of saying that they're having contact detrimental to the team. You know what's detrimental to your team? Your fucking O-line. Work on that. Like, I just, this seems to be the most kind of toxic part of sports that kind of, per our last conversation and the gladiator, you know, part of this, somebody's saying they're hurt. Like, fucking believe them. I just, I don't, ugh, it's dumb. Burn it down. Burn. Now it's time to celebrate the accomplishments of wonderful women in sports this week in our Badass Women of the Week segment. Honorable mentions go to Raquel Ferreira, who was named last month as Senior Vice President of the Boston Red Sox. She's now the highest ranking woman in baseball. Fatma Ramadan and the A Women's Run Group, who participated in the Toronto Scotiabank Waterfront Marathon. This running crew is powered by hijabi ballers and is creating spaces for women of color to run. Also, all of us who watched and participated in the World Cup. The World Cup of 2019 in France broke a record 1.12 billion viewers. What? And finally, the badass woman of the week goes to... Can I get a drum roll? Sad drum roll. 
Bridget Koski of Kenya, who is now the fastest woman in history. The mother of two marathoner completed a race in Chicago in two hours, 14 minutes, and four seconds. Amazing, amazing job. Amazing. <laughs> wow. So, what are you all doing? What's good in your world to keep going? Amira. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to shout out some folks here at Penn State who have made me happy this past week. I'm going to start with um, some of the football players I'm close to who endured a week of bullshit and then wore shirts that the school then made them take off. The shirts had some of the quotes from the racist letter they received. And then College Game Day came to town, and HBO had cameras here, and they still have to go to class. In the midst of all this chaos, they showed out and had a phenomenal game under the lights last night. One of my students, Jesse, broke up uh, Save the Game, broke up a pass that would save the game. Micah had an amazing game, but also KM, Donovan, and Fred. I just want to give all of you a shout out for the labor that you've done <laughs> over the last two weeks, especially amid amid what's been going on around here. I also wanted to give a shout out to Coach Erica Dombach, who's the women's soccer coach here. Last week, she won her 250th game. And so this past Thursday, Allie Krieger was in town and came to the game and presented her with the game ball for her 250th win. It was a really special moment. And also uh, shouting out Sam Coffee, obviously, but I really wanted to end by giving a special shout out to Ellie Jean, who is captain of the women's soccer team. And today is her senior day. This could be the last game that she plays at the infamous Jeffrey Field. It's been such a pleasure watching you play here at Penn State, Ellie, and having you in the classroom and continuing to work with you. And I can't wait to see what's next. Shereen. I love fall. It's a bit rainy these days, but I love fall. I've been doing a bit of little road trips with my daughter who's showcasing at various universities, and that's been a thing. Just went to University of Western Ontario, and they have a like a homecoming, which I always associate with Americans, but they, like, they're the Mustangs, and they actually had a horse on the field, and every time there's a touchdown, they parade the horse around, which I just find fascinating. So I just I think that's really interesting. It's, it's Canadian football, so it's like not American rules, it's Canadian rules. So anyways, I just I find that really interesting. And I'm just really busy with my daughter. She's applying to universities, and I'm not trying to make this about myself, but totally making it about myself. I need her to go to school in which I look great in the colors. So like, I think this is a fair thing. So I'm rooting for like, you know, my color preferences. Anyways, I just wanted to also shout out my co-host at Burn It All Down because I think you're phenomenal. When I don't get to be on the show for whatever reason, I listen to it and I love it so much and I appreciate y'all so much. Um, last thing is my TEDx Toronto talk is next week. I did a I did an expo at the Toronto Scotiabank uh, Marathon Expo on Friday and had an opportunity to be on the stage with Kate Van Buskirk, who's amazing. Corey Erdman and Susan Gerbeck, and they were wonderful. It was so great to be included in a conversation about diversifying places like running. And, you know, it just, it was, it's was, it was really great. The energy is, is really positive. So I was representing TEDx Toronto doing that. And just again, very, very excited about this coming week. I'm a little nervous, but I'm excited. It will be live streamed. So for those of you who are not in Toronto, if you want to see me speak, it will be on. Saturday, October 26th. It's, I think, pretty much sold out now, the event, or very close to it. So it's a big thing. And don't worry, everybody. I have my outfit. I have my outfit ready. So we good. And everyone, you want to hear Shereen speak. <laughs> it is a great thing. What's good in my week is no surprise to anybody. It's Halloween, basically. <laughs> so I've been dressing up and doing ridiculousness, and I feel totally justified because it is the greatest holiday that there is. <laughs> free candy, free candy. You get to you know go up to strangers' houses and ask for things. You get to dress up. It's dark and sexy and the greatest thing ever. I kind of think, you know... I don't know. Everyone should be happy on Halloween. It's beautiful and colorful and it makes me glad. I have a question, Brenda. Is there what? is there a specific candy that you like to give out? Is there like a like some You know what's so funny? You know what's so funny? I don't really like candy that much. 
Yeah. But I like the process of getting it and sorting it with the kids and putting a hierarchy to it. Yeah. What I do is I go trick or treating, you know, for as long as I possibly can. So I leave out a ton of candy at the, you know, like at the very edge of my driveway. So everyone can just come on the honor system. And it's so funny. People never take advantage of that. Okay. I always have candy left. Oh, they don't just. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it restores one's faith in humanity. Yeah. But it's usually Kit Kats, Snickers, and Reese's Pieces. Yeah. Okay. I'm that peanut butter chocolate person. Okay. Cool. I'm a chips girl, 100%. <laughs> so that's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud and can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We do appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe, rate, let us know what we do well, what we don't, how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com and check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you can find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. Once again, we really appreciate all of our current Patreon subscribers and hope that some of you will consider becoming one. I'm Brenda Elsie. On behalf of Dr. Amira Rose Davis and Shereen Ahmed, keep burning on and not out. And I saw-